Good evening, my brothers and sisters in Christ in Angmokyo Methodist Church. If you allow me to read to you from Scripture, and then I will say some uh, introductory remarks before going on to the sermon. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. A very good evening, my brothers and sisters in Christ and Angmokyo Methodists. I bring you greeting, greetings from the principal and faculty of TTC. The college celebrates its 75th anniversary this year. For the past 75 years, we have operated with a singular mission, which is to serve God and the church by educating and equipping students to develop a mature understanding of the historic and biblical Christian faith. The vast majority of our graduates return to their respective sending churches to serve as pastors, missionaries, full-time workers, and theological educators. The world is complex and ever-changing. Theological education at TTC aims to transmit the faith in such a way that our students may meet the challenges of this constantly changing world with an unchanging witness to Christ, for Christ, with Christ, by Christ, and in Christ. The Ministry of Theological Education is part of the total work 
of the church. And in order for us to continue in this ministry, we need at least three things from you. One, your prayers. Two, your members. Please send students to us to be theologically trained. And three, your support in any way, shape, and form. At this juncture, I want to record a special note of thanks to your pastor in charge, Reverend Anthony, for giving me the privilege of gracing the pulpit on this TTC Sunday. And I would like to thank all of you here at Amokyo Methodist for your continued support of the college. We need it, and we feel it. Together with you, let us fulfill the call placed upon all of us by God to be Luke's Mundi, light of the world. Let us pray. I would speak to you now in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Allow me to share just a little bit about myself. I have just been appointed to teach Christian ethics at TTC since January this year. Before that, I had been serving as a pastor appointed to Sengkang Methodist Church. Now, up until this year, if you'd asked me, Nat, what do you do for a living? I would have said, I'm a pastor. But it was only this year, after joining TTC full-time, that I went through a sort of identity crisis. The change in rhythm and the context of ministry made me question who I really was as a minister of the gospel. And so I sought the advice of esteemed colleagues who had been serving both as pastors and lecturers, and they offered me another term in addition to pastor that I had never used to describe myself or even thought of myself in that way. That word is theologian. The word theologian, however, doesn't always engender positive reactions amongst Christians. One classic phrase that is often used to describe the context in which theologians do the work of theology is the ivory tower. Today, that term conjures up the image of theologians who have imprisoned themselves in pious walled towers where we avoid the real world. Out in the real world, out there, where injustice and suffering and evil and wars and anguish is happening, do theologians and the work of theology make any meaningful contribution? By extension then, should we continue to send our eager and willing brothers and sisters in Christ for theological education? And perhaps pushing that question just one step further, what is the good of theology for the Christian life anyway? Now, if all of this seems too a little on the nose, the new TTC lecturer coming on TTC Sunday to defend theology, then rest assured that is not my intent at all. I come in peace. I simply hope to show that by the end of the sermon, that theology proper, that particular discipline of knowledge that we call the pursuit of the knowledge of God, acts as true seeds of faith that move us in our journey from mortal life into resurrection life. Today, almost no one has anything good to say about the ivory tower. But it might surprise you to discover that the phrase can be tracked back to antiquity, and more specifically, to biblical sources. The poet of Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 4, uses the term to describe his lover's exquisite beauty. Your neck, he says, is like an ivory tower. 
in the 12th century drawing on this Old Testament usage, the figure of the ivory tower became closely associated with the figure of Mary, the mother of Jesus. A 450-year-old prayer dedicated to Mary, called the Litany of Loreto, contains these expressions. Mirror of justice, seat of wisdom, spiritual vessel, mystical rose, tower of David, tower of ivory, house of gold. Now, this positive and pious meaning of the term ivory tower carried over even into more modern times. In a late 19th century meditation, John Henry Newman writes, Mary is called the tower of ivory to suggest to us by the brightness, purity, and exquisiteness of that material, how transcendent is the loveliness and gentleness of the mother of God. To think that all this piety, all this positivity, sprang from one poet's evocative description of his lover's neck. Psalm 139 is also ceaselessly rich. An ivory tower of sorts, if by that you mean something of beauty and exquisite worth. Interpreters, scholars, preachers and readers of the psalm have all seen in Psalm 139 a deeply meditative prayer on the attributes of God. No single psalm has been consistently cited as much as Psalm 139 as a source for classical Christian doctrine. This is especially so in the first 18 verses of the psalm. A professional theologian cannot help but notice that one can divide these first 18 verses into three sections of six verses each. Each of these sections then closely corresponds to one of the three classical attributes of God. Omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. If you've been coming to church for a while, you probably have heard of these terms already. And this text, Psalm 139, 139, is a preacher's dream, the kind of text that divides itself nicely into a classic three-point sermon. For example, the first six verses speak of the omniscience of God, God as all-knowing. The psalmist launches into powerful descriptions of God's knowledge. God searches, God knows, God discerns, God has a deep acquaintance, and God foreknows. God's knowledge is so overwhelming that the psalmist says, you hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is, I quote, too wonderful for the psalmist. And here the wonder of God's knowledge feels alarmingly mysterious, a kind of foreboding intellect that is so total it seems substantive. Think of how receiving joyful news uh, makes your body shed a few kilograms and you feel lighter immediately on your feet. Think of how finding something terrible about a loved one can feel like a weight around your shoulders. God's knowledge in the first six verses of this psalm carries that kind of weight, that substance, that presence. This sense of presence then continues into the next six verses of the psalm. Omnipresence is the word normally used to describe this divine attribute. And this simply means that God is inescapably everywhere. If his knowledge has no limits, then his presence knows no constraints. Neither time nor space are able to hold God. God is both in the heavens and the underworld. God inhabits past, present and future in such a consistent, pervasive way that there is no escaping that presence. 
And then the last six verses of uh, uh, verses 13 to 18 comes an exploration of God's omnipotence, His power. For all the power of the modern age, we are still unable to fashion a living creature out of nothing. We can only articulate the processes and the stages by which a new life is formed. For example, social egg freezing and artificial reproductive technologies are not the magic bullet that they are sometimes made out to be. The statistics for successful fertilization and implantation of the egg into a womb may seem marketable. But when you stretch the window of reporting to include the numbers of carrying a baby to full term and successful births, these numbers grow much weaker. For all the remarkable and admirable advances in our ability to support pregnancies, we are left staring at the obvious gap between our ability and our aspirations. Only God, always and everywhere, accomplishes whatever He wants to do in the creation of a human being. The poet acknowledges God's power to do this work. There you have it. A classic three-point exposition on three classical attributes in the doctrine of God. Omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. It's theology in the so-called ivory tower mode, tied up in neat little bowls, perfect little systems, the God of the philosophers who is inscrutable, unknowable, and completely detached from the plane of human existence. But the psalm doesn't end there. In one of the strangest passages in the whole of Scripture, this most exquisite of psalms drastically changes gear near the end. In verses 19 to 22. Here, the psalmist expresses anger on God's behalf, calling on God and invoking His name to slay the wicked and celebrating the poet's perfect hatred for those who hate God. Old Testament experts tell us that this is the most puzzling aspect of Psalm 139. As a literary genre, the psalm is unique in the Psalter. This petition comes up suddenly and changes the tone of the psalm completely. Some commentators think that the psalmist composed this psalm at a time when the nation was facing enemies from outside that threatened the temple. And so in a time of national and religious chaos, the poet retreated within himself, confused by the hopelessness of the crisis. Others have suggested different reasons for the poet's sudden petition. Even so, the vehemence of the sentiments raised in verses 19 to 22 have posed the sharpest problems for interpreters. The pathos, the anger, the threat of violence seem so unacceptable to modern sensibilities that they are commonly omitted from liturgical and theological use. But even if the specific circumstances under which the psalm was composed elude us, one thing is clear. This is not ivory tower theology. The person composing this felt the anguish of a broken and chaotic world. And this powerful psalm was birthed in the crucible of that chaos. Whatever the crisis that occasioned this psalm, rereading the first 18 verses in light of verses 19 to 22 changes the texture completely. We discover that the psalm's exploration of what we call the classical attributes of God his all-knowing, his being all-present, 
and His almighty power are always concrete and existential. It is not abstract knowledge of God that the psalmist is speculating on, but who God is as God has revealed Himself in relation to the poet, to Israel, and now to us, the church. When we consider this, suddenly with unveiled faces, we discern that theology functions to draw us deeper into the heart of God. We see stained glass windows in the ivory tower. Just as how the ivory tower of Song 7 verse 4 becomes the powerful litany, the prayerful litany of Loretto, Psalm 139 reflects how one psalmist turned to his knowledge of God in the midst of chaos. And it was this knowledge of God that culminates in a prayer that sees God's omniscience, God's omnipresence and omnipotence not in the abstract, but always out of the relationship that God has with the psalmist. For example, if we will return to verse 1 and 2, we see God's omniscience in relation to God's knowledge of the psalmist. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Here is an intimate picture of domestic life. God knows me so well that he can anticipate when I'm about to sit down, when I'm going to wake up, what I'm thinking about and what I'm going to be thinking about, which route I'm going to take to go to where I'm headed and what I'm about to say. We may think that theology makes us know more about God. But the truth is, our knowledge of God can never outpace the depth of God's intimate knowledge of us. As the psalmist has continued reflecting, he has discovered God's presence in our life, in good or bad, in mourning or in the night, in joy or in sorrow. Our nation is currently going a very public soul-searching, examining the nature of trust and morality in our leaders. One can only imagine the pain of the wounds of betrayal, loneliness, failure, and abandonment that the people involved and their families are facing. Perhaps some of us here too, today, are victims of such wounds. Our instinct is always to run and hide. But even in relation to these wounds, the psalmist is confident in his knowledge of God's attributes. Even into the uttermost parts of the sea, even in the darkness, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. As he has continued reflecting on these attributes of God, the psalmist has discovered that God's presence isn't limited even just to this life, this earth, this existence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If we die, if we go into perpetual darkness, if we go into dazzling light, if we are buried in the earth or cremated into the ashes, wherever we are and whatever form we come to be, we shall find that there God already is, beside us, with us, among us, before us. I wonder if every one of us here has, has at some time or another, even frequently, wondered what it would be like to end our life. 
and we have held back, maybe from fear or from our conscience of hurting those who love us. The words that I've just mentioned from Psalm suggest something that seldom occurs to us. Not that our death would change and ruin and destroy everything, but that in God's sight, it wouldn't change anything. Because God would still be there, as present as ever, maybe even more so. Once again, we cannot outrun His love. And there is nowhere we can go where we are invisible to God. And yet, another dimension, time. It was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And here the psalmist discovers that God knows me before there was a me to know. God knew the days of my life long before I existed, as if they were words and sentences in a book. God made me as delicately as a brain surgeon makes stitches. In the words of one of the fathers of the early church, Augustine, God is, and I quote, closer to me than I am to myself. Reflecting on the nature of God's power to shape life, the poet has discovered that we are with God all along. And now he knows the implications of doctrine. If God is omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent, then it must mean that through all the circling years, the God of all life has been exercising those attributes for the sake of the psalmist. And we, we discover with the psalmist that God promises to exercise those attributes for us. All of those attributes are invoked in the context of a close, intimate relationship with humanity. Over the centuries, Christians have explored the richness of church doctrines and have come to contemplate these shared beliefs, whether about God's life as Trinity, the incarnation of God's Word as Jesus, or the pouring out of God's life in the Spirit. And we've thought about them not as abstract propositions making God more distant than ever, but as the all-enveloping mystery in which we live, live and move and have our being. Theology, I think, goes hand in hand with prayer. Theology opens our hearts and minds to the vast wonder of what God is trying to teach us. And then prayer draws us into that transforming encounter with that inexhaustible goodness. Prayer, understood as our response to the indwelling spirit and the alignment of our spirit with the life of the Trinity, takes us into a realm of divine mystery, which exceeds all that we can ever ask for or imagine, in which we experience as love. I want to invite you to imagine with me that we are all characters in a play. And by that, I don't mean that we are actors temporarily portraying the characters. But think and imagine that we were all actual characters in a play. As such, we would have no notion that we are characters in a play. We simply see our existence as what life is, and that's it. It would never occur to us that there might be another form of life, of existence, of a mysteriously greater and deeper kind, the life of our author, our playwright. I want to suggest that this analogy of God as author and we as characters is precisely what Psalm 139 is trying to communicate to us. 
at the heart of every creature and everything is God's knowing of that creature and that thing. God is intimately present within every aspect of the world, thinking and loving and bringing everything into existence moment by moment. God is fully present within everything as an author is intimately present within everything in her book. Our author's thinking and loving sustains our life moment by moment. And because God transcends the universe as our author, God is more present within everything than another being alongside could ever be. It is God's presence within everything that holds it together. And I suppose now is a good time for us to ask, what would happen, what would happen if we shaped our thoughts on God to be thoughts towards God? Few things can help us grow more richly human than the conviction that God loves us without reserve and will never turn away from us. We can always ask God for a sense of this intimate, loving, life-giving presence in our lives, perhaps in moments like these when we are gathered together in worship. In these moments of deeper awareness, we begin to sense the expansive radiance of God's generous giving at the center of our lives, knowing and loving us in every moment. Theological reflection, reflection on knowledge that is too wonderful for us, should lead us deeper into God. When we emulate the psalmist of Psalm 139, theology then becomes a bridge that God throws across infinity. Through it, God reminds us that at the heart of all the good we will ever know and all the loss we will ever feel is the love of God calling us, beckoning us onward into that center where all that is lost shall be found and all that has died lives in everlasting life. I have titled this sermon Stained Glass and the Ivory Tower. Because for me, that is the unifying image that Psalm 139 presents to us. The image of stained glass, and I really like this one. I forgot to ask Pastor Anthony whether this was designed uh, specifically for the church, or is this a, a kind of uh, image that you found uh, somewhere? Not specially designed? So it, this is unique to Angmokyo. What a wonderful, what a wonderful picture. The image of stained glass reminds me of churches, as this one now will remind me of Angmokyo forever, of a house of worship and prayer. Theology and prayer is what happens in Psalm 139. A forebear in the faith reflects on the mystery of God in his life and puts those thoughts into words that we can share and talk about together. And in those shared words, we find expressions of theology, yes, but above all, we find words that are meant to guide us into the mystery of God, who is there before we were made, who accompanies us wherever in life we go, who loves us beyond reason, and who will resurrect us from the graveyards of our failure. In this way, the ivory tower of theology fuses into a stained glass encounter with God, who draws us from our human words into the eternal word. Theology is prayer because it is our meeting with the one who understands us from within as only God can. 
In July 2017, I was going through my biggest personal and professional crisis. My brother had passed away, age 39, in October 2016. And in addition to the unbearable grief of his passing, I was also going through what seemed an insurmountable difficulty regarding my plans uh, after my studies. I found it in that period difficult to even go to church, and my prayers were suffocated under the wreckage of my soul. It was during this time that my wife, my son and I took a road trip in England, and we made a planned stop at Coventry Cathedral. I love visiting churches, but for many months since my brother passed, I could not even find it within myself to go to the cathedral next door to the theology department where I was studying. As we stood outside Coventry Cathedral, my thoughts turned once again to all those wonderful theology that I had learned and discovered about God. I battled within and with Him. God, have you now forsaken me? Why have you, the Almighty, chosen to veil your power and your love just at the moment when I need you the most? I cast my mind on those doctrines and theological niceties that I had studied. And I was ready to give up on them, on faith, maybe even on God. And then my wife and I and my son pushed our way through the glass doors of the cathedral and I found myself in a huge open space that seemed to stretch on forever. It's, the cathedral itself also is enormously huge in size, high. Right at the front, behind the altar, where stained glass would normally be, was the most amazing sight I've ever seen. It was a 23-meter-high and 12-meter-long tapestry called Christ in Glory. I apologize that I did not prepare a slide for that for you to see, but I think you all have Google, so you can Google that. Coventry Cathedral Christ in Glory or Coventry Cathedral Tapestry. In that tapestry, Christ himself seemed to beckon to me, to draw near to him. And in an instant, I did. In that instant, all my theology and all my prayers connected. Christ, the King of glory, in whom there is no beginning and no end. Christ, the King, in whom death death itself has lost its sting. Christ, the King, in whom my beloved brother now lives forever and in whom is the promise of eternal reunion. Suddenly, the clouds of gloom in my heart broke and sunlight showered into my soul. At that instant, I had a sense of immense and and unlimited goodness, of joy beyond words. Over the years since then, I have held out this memory to God in prayer many times, for I sensed that deeply woven through them was God's meaning and God's love. My thoughts about God led to an encounter with God, who by that very means of my thoughts and senses began to wake me up to the bright immensity of joy that He is forever. That day, I began to relinquish my grief. Or perhaps, more accurately, that day, grief relinquished its hold on me. This seems to be what happened to the psalmist. In the last two verses of Psalm 139, the speaker halts his intricate exploration of the complexities of knowing and comprehensively submits to God's loving knowledge. 
the psalm, which started with a description, O God, you have searched me and known me, now ends with a request. Search me and know my heart. What does such an abrupt conclusion mean? I think this is the psalmist's stained glass moment. He has discovered the difference between our knowing and God's knowing. With humans, knowing and loving can be separate. There's always the fear that if someone really knew us, they would have a power over us that they could use to hurt us. The modern usage of the term ivory tower speaks of this kind of knowledge, a knowledge that is detached, uninvolved, clinical, and unloving. But God's knowing is different. God's knowing and God's loving are inseparable. There's never a moment when God knows but doesn't love. Or loves but doesn't know. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that we can hardly begin to imagine. God wholly knows because God wholly loves. And God wholly loves even though He wholly knows. The psalmist, having examined his thoughts and himself, now relinquishes his chaos so that he can entrust himself to God's peace. Do you see now how Psalm 139 is a vivid illustration of the journey of theological knowledge and prayer? Do you see how this is a journey that only God can make possible? In His divine life is our life. And within His divine life, we shall finally know ourselves and be set free to become ourselves in truth. This is what the psalmist calls the way everlasting. And that is why if we do it rightly, the ivory tower of theology will always be adorned with the stained glass of prayer. May the all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful God, even now, unite our knowing and loving in the way everlasting, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.